gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman Golden Age Superman The Superman Fan Podcast Superman in the Bronze Age From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast The New 52 Adventures of Superman I've got a few things to say about Superman The Carousel Podcast The Superman Vidcast The World's Best Podcast And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com Join hosts Michael Bradley John Wilson Billy Hogan Charlie Niemeyer J. David Weeder Jeffrey Taylor Michael Bailey Scott Gardner Danny Sapp Cayman Stoll I'm Isaac I'm Adam Dave Yunus and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com Superman enters the house of mystery and Superboy tackles a demon on this the Halloween edition of Superman in the Bronze Age This is episode 60 of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today we're going to finish up October with a look at two more spooky super adventures. But before we get into that, I need to mention that this episode is sponsored by Discount Comic Book Service. Want to keep up on all your favorite comics, graphic novels, and collected editions, but don't want to pay full retail price? Look no further than Discount Comic Book Service. DCBS is an online comics retailer that offers comic fans the comics they need at the prices they want, with monthly specials that range from 45 to 75% off the retail price, and over 13,000 individual collected editions and graphic novels in stock. DCBS is the one-stop shop that every comic book fan longs for. You can find them on the web at www.dcbservice.com, and please be sure to visit their sister stores, In Stock Trades and My Digital Comics. Now, on a somewhat related note, um, there are some other books that are available for pre-order that also features stories of Superman and, I guess, Superboy, and maybe one or two of them, from the Bronze Age. Uh, DC is reprinting the Superman vs. Shazam Treasury Edition Special, which is due out in February, uh, which was a treasury, one of the big Treasury Edition specials that they did in the 70s. Um, basically, it's... It's actually got super, basically Superman's full cast and the Captain Marvel cast all meeting up. And at one point, you do have Superman versus Shaz- not Shazam. He's called Shazam now, but Superman versus Captain Marvel and Supergirl versus Mary Marvel. So that's pretty cool. And I will be covering that probably around when it comes out, I would guess. Uh, then there's a collection of Superman stories drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez which is coming out in April, and a collection of super store of Superman stories by Gil Kane coming out in January. Now, like I, obviously they're not out yet, but what I'm asking is that if you guys are interested, please go out and pre-order these books. 
uh, you can go to your local comic shop or go to the Superman store on the Superman homepage, which is basically Amazon. But if you follow that link, the Superman homepage gets a little bit of a referral fee. So you'd be helping out that site as well. But see, success of these books is will be based on the amount of pre-orders DC gets for them. And in order to get more of these kinds of books published, the numbers are going to need to be pretty high. Also, some of the Bronze Age issues of Superman in action are now available for purchase on Comixology to be, that you can read on your iPhone or iPad or any other phone or tablet these days. And they're, because they're so old, they're just 99 cents each. And DC usually stays away from the Bronze Age Superman stuff, especially. But I'm hoping that maybe if we can start getting them to show that this era has its share of fans too, that we can get more of it made readily available. Because, I don't know about you guys, but these books are starting to get pretty old. And I'd like to preserve them as much as possible. And it gets kind of hairy sometimes. My issues are all in good condition, but I'm, you know, some of them are 40 years old and I just worry every time I open up open them up to look at them so if you could do that that would be great I'm not requiring it I'm not making a special plea I'm just requesting it thank you now I'm going to get off my soapbox and next up we have answers to last episode's super question what is your favorite spooky Superman story first up we're going to go over to the group page where Billy Hogan responded by saying that his favorite story is Superman Red Class, the three-part story that was published in Superman 56, Adventures of Superman 479, and Action Comics number 666 back in 1991. I have read that story. That is a pretty good story. It's one freaky story till you get to the end because it makes it's really confusing and it's almost an Elseworlds until you get to the end. So that's really, really cool. Uh, so thank you, Billy. Billy is the host of the Superman Fan Podcast, which you can find at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Uh, next up is Michael Poteet. And he says, It may only tangentially be a Superman story, but it has to be the ghost of Pharaoh Lab, which I also like. And I don't know, I, I count the Legion as part of Superman's world. Um, I cover more... St- I'm, well, there will be team-ups, I'm sure, but I'm, I would cover more of their stories if Superman played more of a part. Uh, David did uh, do the Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes special for a few episodes a couple months ago, so they do count. Uh, Russell Bragg wrote, Hi, I was going to say the issue when Superman lost his red briefs, but I'm... <laughs> I got what you did there, Russell. But I'm going to go with the first image that came to my head, and that's one of the stories in Action Comics 406, The Ghost That Haunted Clark Kent. I think it's an untold story of Clark Kent tale. And you know, I don't remember. I'm pretty sure that's actually just a second Superman story in that issue, but I don't remember. I do know that we covered that on this show. So uh, if you go back in the archives... uh, Russell, you can check that out unless you've already heard it, in which case you don't need to do it again unless you really want to. So, yeah. All right, well, that's all the answers, and there was no emails. So, what is going on, people? Uh, Please, feel free to email. You don't have to just answer these questions. You can talk about the show. I don't mind. Uh, But please, feel free, I implore you, to comment on the Facebook page or the group page or send an email to superbronze1970 at gmail.com and I'll read them on the air and comment on them. Uh, 
I'll probably even respond to it when I first get it, because I don't want you to think I'm ignoring it. So, yeah, I should probably tell you what my favorite one is. Ha ha! Uh, my favorite Superman spooky story is um, probably, I'd have to go with the two-part story from Superman, The Man of Steel 14, and Superman number 70. Um, it's got Superman versus a vampire, Jimmy and Robin meeting for the first time in the post-crisis, and Dan Jurgens drawing the Tim Drake Robin. What more do you need? So, it's awesome stuff. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Well, hello there. I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the internet. Come in. Enjoy my palatial Arctic estate. Ah, I see you noticed the smell of mahogany and my hardback archive and showcase editions. Yeah, I do all right for myself. Listen, why don't you get cozy here with me on my titano skin rug while Metallo mixes us up a drinky drink? Metallo, soda cola martini, shaken. Look, I want you to come with me to a place. A place where it's only you and me and the Man of Steel, maybe Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane? Wait, wait, where are you going? No, this isn't me coming on to you. This is a podcast promo. What I'm trying to propose is joining me weekly like Clark Kent did when he threw the green crystal into the water and saw Marlon Brando's giant head appear, only in podcast form and my head just won't even be visible because it is an audio medium. Once a week, delve into the world of Superman with me on Superman Forever Radio. Look at comics, toy lines, TV series, characters, creators, anything and everything connected to the Man of Steel. Every Sunday at supermanforever.com, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Superman Forever Radio, fighting for truth and justice forever. That's supermanforever.com. See, I didn't mean what you thought I meant. It's all good. And yes, this is a new glowing white Kryptonian robe. Thank you so much for noticing. And yes, that is Lori Lamaris lounging by the pool. Don't tell her, but we're having smoked salmon for dinner and she takes it very personally. And you know who can't take a joke? Terra Man. You get one Glue Factory reference and he's up in arms. Superman Forever Radio. Keeping J. David Weeder off the streets so you don't have to. Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world! SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of and more. SupermanHomePage.com We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Alright, and we're back. My contribution to the episode today is going to be DC Comics Presents number 53, which apparently I'm starting a trend here. Um, because I know what's coming next month. Uh, DC, Com- DC Comics presents number 53 with a cover date of January 1983, but an on-sale date of October 7th, 1982, which is what makes it so fitting for the story, uh, and it had a cover price of 60 cents. The title of the story is The Haunting Dooms of Halloween, written by Dan Mishkin, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Tony DeZuniga, De- DeZuniga? 
We'll go with that. Letterer John Costanza, colorist Gene D'Angelo, and editor Julie Schwartz. Our story begins on Halloween night, where young Ricky is trick-or-treating all by himself in a Superman costume, which does not appear to be very reflective. Ah, safety standards in the 80s. His, uh, it looks like he's been going for a while, but he stops at Mrs. Feaster's house, who makes a joke about him flying on patrol instead of getting candy, when all of a sudden, Ricky turns into the Man of Steel. Turning around, Super Fake spots an emergency with his supervision and takes off with an up, up, and away as a somewhat familiar shadow, unseen by Mrs. Feaster, silently laughs. In Metropolis, Lois Lane is hosting a costume party at her apartment. Among those attending are Perry White as Julius Caesar, naturally, Lana Lang as Wonder Woman, Jimmy Olsen as Thor, complete with a Mjolnir that is... lacking. Steve Lombard as Hercules, Clark Kent as Green Lantern, and Lois as Cleopatra, wearing a new perfume fittingly called Queen of the Nile. Lois asks Clark what made him decide to dress as Green Lantern, which provides Lombard with the opening he needs to make Clark look like a fool while showing off his muscles. But all of that is soon forgotten when Superfake suddenly busts in through a window, insisting that he needs to get Lois out of there at once. While Lois is busy insisting on finding out why, Clark tries to check out Superfake with his X-ray vision, but something's blocking it. At this point, Jimmy tries to find out what's going on, but suddenly turns into the real fake Thor which actually doesn't look any different than normal Jimmy, but Mjolnir starts shooting lightning and causes it to rain in the apartment. He doesn't even, like, ha- not even a have thee or I say thee nay, which is my favorite Thor stuff, so I don't know what is going on. So Superfake takes the opportunity to get Lois out of there, and they fly out the window. Devising a way to get out of there himself, Clark uses his heat vision to make his fake Green Lantern ring glow, which causes Steve to believe that the ring has become real the way Jimmy's Mjolnir did. Going along with the charade, Clark starts floating and, with some encouragement from Steve, flies off after Lois. At super speed, he's quickly able to catch up to Superfake, but soon is shocked when two nearby birds suddenly transform into gigantic birds of prey and attack him. He quickly fights them off with super speed spinning, which also causes the Green Lantern costume to rip away to reveal the Superman costume underneath. Once they are away from the Man of Steel, the birds return to normal, but they have done their job. Superman has lost both Lois and the Superfake. Next, we turn our attention far away from the city lights to a solitary structure nestled among the haunted hills and hollows of the southern Appalachians. For some, it's a place of dread. For others, a last refuge. And not all of those who have dared cross its threshold have found a way to leave the The House House of of Mysteries. Inside, Kane is telling scary stories... Inside, Kane is telling scary stories to a bunch of trick-or-treaters when, with a poof, Mr. Mixias Pitalik arrives, announcing that he's got some fun planned for Superman. While Kane continues to have trouble with the imp's name, Superfake arrives with Lois. After returning Ricky to normal, although wearing regular clothes instead of the Superman costume, Mixias Pitalik actually gets the other kids to agree to help him torment Superman. When they do... He uses his magic to turn them into the monsters they are dressed up as, including ghosts, vampires, and werewolves, decades before Twilight. Meanwhile, Superman has figured out that he can follow Lois by using his super sense of smell to follow her distinctive new perfume, and soon arrives outside the House of Mystery. As he enters, he is told, by the house, that he only has until the clock strikes 12 midnight to find Lois 
or she will be lost forever. It's only 11, and Superman can move at super speed, so he believes that he'll be able to search the whole house and save Lois in just a matter of minutes. But is he in for a shock? In the very first room he checks, Superman finds himself in the grasp of a creature straight out of some Japanese tentacle porn, with some sort of sticky goop in the middle of it. While Mixius Pitalik, Kane, and Ricky watch, invisible to even the Man of Steel's eyes, Superman finally breaks free while noticing a digital watch on one of the tentacles showing that it is now 11.06. Superman flies straight up to a door on the ceiling, which takes him into the next room that, believe it or not, is perpendicular to the last room. Superman lands and takes a moment to adjust to the shifting of his center of gravity before moving on, at which point Mixius Pitalik turns off the lights. Walking along in the darkness, Superman is accosted by a human skeleton, which he knocks away with ease, but when Mr. Mixius Pitalik turns the lights back on, Superman sees that the skeleton was actually just a boy in a Halloween costume. Unfortunately, or fortunately, the boy isn't hurt, so Superman leaves him on a nearby couch and continues searching for Lois, knowing that he'll need to be more careful if he comes across any more creatures, since they could also just be kids. Entering the next room, Superman finds himself in the Daily Planet City Room, where Lana greets him by calling him Clark and telling him that she hopes that he got some footage of his latest superfeat for the Midnight Newscast. As she walks off, Perry also refers to him as Clark and tells him that he needs to he needs a rewrite on a story by deadline, which is in 15 seconds. Superman takes the story and quickly does the rewrite at super speed, realizing that something's wrong and thinking he should be somewhere else. Then Jimmy walks by, as if he just stepped out of a Silver Age comic, but completely ignores Superman, which Perry assumes is because Superman didn't tell him his secret identity before revealing it to the world. This causes Superman to look down at his costume, and it sort of jogs his memory, as he now returns... returns? as he now remembers that he's looking for Lois. He heads over to her desk, but instead runs into Kane and Ricky. While Superman tries to get them to tell him where Lois is, Kane explains to Ricky that they are in the Room of Dreams, and that there is a psychodrama playing in Superman's head, where the things he dreads most are coming true. Frustrated at Kane's lack of compliance, Superman begins spinning him over his head like a helicopter propeller, when suddenly, three old-school gangsters barge in, telling him to freeze before they splatter his friends all over the room. Once they mention that the walls have been painted with kryptonite paint, Superman suddenly starts feeling the effects of kryptonite before falling through a door in the floor of the city room. Now away from the Room of Dreams, Superman regains his senses and worries about how much time he's just wasted that he should have been looking for Lois. Pushing on one of the walls of his small enclosure, he ends up opening a coffin in a completely different room. Exiting the coffin, he comes face to face with the Lord of Vampires, who wants nothing more than to see if he can actually puncture Superman's skin with his fangs and drink his blood. I want to drink your blood. <laughs> Superman is able to hold him back, but realizes that it might just be another child. So he focuses his heat vision on a nearby gas lamp, which creates an incandescent explosion, which hurts the vampire and turns it back into a child with a vampire costume. However, the nearby grandfather clock begins its midnight toll. But all is not yet lost, as Superman remembers that the house said that he had until the clock strikes 12, so in the span of the next 12 strikes, Superman uses his super nose again to trace Lois's perfume through the house, kicking himself for not thinking of it sooner. Finally reaching his destination, Superman looks on in horror as the clock strikes for the 12th time, and he sees that the scent he followed led him to a skunk. 
At this point, Mixius Pitalik shows himself, laughing at the look on Superman's face. This makes Superman laugh out loud, because while Mixius Pitalik might be an impossible pest, he'd never knowingly hurt anybody. While Mixius Pitalik gloats that this is just the beginning because he's too smart to be tricked by Superman into saying his name backwards again, Ricky has a secret conversation with Kane as Lois and the kids enter from another room. Lois explains that she was locked in a room with comic book artists chained to drawing boards. She wanted to free them, but she couldn't take on the responsibility for letting them loose on the world, which Superman calls a smart move. Superman then focuses his attention on Mixius Pitalik, but the imp tells him that he's not leaving this time. Kane then tells Superman that his friend Caltipsy-Zim is here to stay. Mixius Pitalik thanks him, and then starts to correct him by saying that his name isn't Caltipsy-Zim. But before he can finish his sentence, he finds himself disappearing back to the fifth-dimensional land of Zerf. And our story ends with Superman hoping that that's the last trick for this Halloween, and Kane offering up a treat of stuffed lizard tails. Oh, that was a fun story, wasn't it? Page one, Swan seems to have a stock mock Superman costume in his repertoire because this same costume will later be worn by a different kid in a story over in Superman later on in the in 1983. Page three, Clark's Green Lantern costume actually looks really authentic, if I didn't know better. And wouldn't it hurt his timid, weakling image to wear a skin-tight costume showing off his super Kryptonian physique? I mean, even if he does the slouch thing, he's still gonna. Ha- he's still shown with a six-pack. I mean, hello. Uh, page four. Like I said before, Superman's version of Mjolnir looks downright pathetic. It is a small hammer that actually looks a little bit more like a pitchfork than a hammer. Very small. Uh, page five. Clark's trick of heating up the fake Green Lantern ring should not work in real life. For one thing, the heat, uh, the heat should cause it to glow in a reddish color instead of green. Second, the ring should actually melt off before too long. And third, the smell of burning plastic would probably be a dead giveaway. Um, page 10, Superman has no reaction to the fact that a house is talking to him. I don't know about you, but if a house was talking to me, I'd be pretty much freaked out, regardless of it being Halloween or Easter. Page 15. Two people I recognize in the Daily Planet City Room, besides Superman, Lana, and Perry, appear to be Kurt Swan and Julie Schwartz. Kurt's in the back, drawing something, and Julie Schwartz is in the front, talking to somebody. You can also see a guy talking to Julie, and another one typing on a typewriter. Either of them could be Dan Mishkin but I don't know because I don't know what Dan Mishkin looks like. Uh, Page 17. Talk about your old school gangsters. They're in suits, wearing hats, and one has a Tommy gun. Uh, Probably a lot like this bad guy Swan drew back when he started comics in the 40s, so maybe it's just a throwback for him. Page 19. I believe I have only seen a vampire actually bite Superman once in all of the Superman comics I've read, and when it happened, all the solar energy in Superman's body actually destroyed the vampire. It was a Jeff Loeb issue of Superman, post Our Worlds at War. 
Um, other times, the vampires have come close, but never actually completed the task of biting him. Uh, the one I mentioned earlier, I think he might have gotten so far as to actually be touching his neck with the teeth, but it, he, it, before he could actually chomp down, there was some light. I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, now on TV, I believe it happened on an episode of Superboy, but I haven't seen the episode since it originally aired, so I really don't remember much of it. Uh, page 23. I have never read House of Mystery before, so I don't know if Lois's line about the comic artist is a reference to something in that book, or just an attempt at dark humor. Either way, it's pretty funny, especially with Superman calling it a smart move and then everyone just kind of dismissing it and ignoring it. And also on page 23, I should explain more how uh, tricking Mixia's Pitalik worked. Okay, ever since Mixie first showed up in the House of Mystery, Kane kept referring to him with different names, all of which were wrong. And each time, Mixie would say that his name isn't whatever Kane called him, it's Mixius Pitalik, which is continued with Kane, uh, which is continued when Kane called him Celtipsism at the end. Now this happened multiple times through the story, uh, when Kane called him Mr. Ridiculous, Mixlepickle. Mr. Mix Missile System, and Mr. Swizzle Sticks, before Ricky tells him to call him Kill Tipsism. So each time he's like, no, it's not Mr. Ridiculous, it's Mixius Pitalik. It's not Mixel Pickle, it's Mixius Pitalik, and on, so on and so forth. So the trick to get him out was actually planted all the way through the story. In other words, that works for me. And if I had thought about it, I probably would have caught it sooner. But I didn't even notice it, so it worked for me. Overall, I really enjoyed this story. Sure, there are some parts that are, were unintentionally wonky, but overall it was just a really fun story, and it appears that Michigan and Swan were having a lot of fun with it, between the different kind of art, some of the background stuff, uh, the things in the stories themselves, the creatures, the turning the art. When Superman flies up into that room in the ceiling... Everything is sideways, is drawn sideways, and then once Superman's center of gravity gets adjusted, then that's when the art also switches. So that was actually kind of cool. Uh, but Michigan delivered a fun script that had some humor, drama, and superheroics, while Swan provided some great art, giving as much attention to the backgrounds as to the main characters. As for Tony DeZanuga's inks, they aren't bad. Uh, for the most part, they do a good job of adding a bit more realism to Swan's art. Um, similar to what Adams was able to do, or Neil Adams was able to do on some of the covers he inked over Swan. I really wish that they had had more opportunities to work together because I think that with more stories consecutively working together, that they probably would have meshed really well into a great art team. Another bit of irony is that both the issues following is that the issues following both la the issue from last episode and this issue feature a team up with Green Arrow. That's just weird. Moving on to the ads this issue. The inside front cover has a, an ad for Milk Duds, Clark Bars, and Zagnuts. Now it's kind of weird. The Milk Duds bar looks like it's still in 1950s packaging. 
the Clark bar and the Zagnut look a little more quote-unquote modern, but all three of them are bigger. The Clark and Zagnut bar are 25% bigger now, and the Milk Duds are 15% more candy, which makes me wonder, based on stuff I've seen these days, is it that in order to keep a certain price point, the all of them got smaller, and then they decided to raise the price point, so it put them back at the bigger size? Hmm. But uh, for this... Basically, they're wanting you to buy this candy so you can get your own Pan Ocean AM FM stereo receiver for only 20 bucks uh, with when you use the wrappers or boxes from five of those candy bars. Uh, the AM FM radio has stereo LED indicator, pocket clip for easy carrying, two-channel volume control, a mono stereo switch, and a headphone antenna. Uh, that's right, this is the last step before a Walkman, pretty much. But that offer expired in December 31st of 82, so unfortunately we can't do that now. And it, it's odd, they have two people walking around smiling at each other, but they really aren't talking if they're both listening to the radio through their headphones. I don't know. Uh, the next ad is for, now Bubble Yum is Super Yum. It's longer lasting. The best tasting ever. It's smoother and blows great bubbles. It's even more delicious. And hey, look at all the great tasting flavors. It comes in spearmint and... Excuse me, and it comes in spearmint and other flavors that I can't read because the art isn't clear enough. But basically it's a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of kids holding up a ginormous bubble yum bubble gum pack. Uh, next uh, is an ad I'm going to save for later. Uh, next up is Lifesaver Circle of Flavors. Find your way through the maze to get to the Lifesavers in the middle. And basically it's a one of those round mazes and you start at one spot and then you have to work your way to the Lifesavers in the middle. Lifesavers Roll Candy and Lollipops. Super flavors, super fun. Which is ironic in a Superman comic. Uh, next is actually something interesting. Uh, after page 13 of the story is an insert comic for Atari Force. Now this is a comic that's later going to actually actually become a long or a several issue comic series by Jerry Conway and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. But this insert, which is being used to promote the many comics that will appear with the, ga- with the Atari Force games, as well as you know, to promote Atari Force. They apparently were really important to DC. Because you've got Jerry Conway writing it. Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano on art. John Costanza as the letterer. Adrian Roy as the colorist. And Dick Giordano editing. Basically, you've got some of their top quality people at the time working on this book. The writer and artist's are basically are exactly the same team from uh, Amazing Spider-Man versus Superman. So I, I I'm not completely sure. I I didn't have an Atari. I'm at that age where I was only five when the Nintendo started up. So I don't know much about this Atari stuff. But what I do know is that they really went all out, and I haven't read the story. But the art looks really cool. Uh, but that is another full-length 
16-page story. So it's really cool. Usually these inserts usually like to feature like people and creators you've never heard of before other than possibly the editor. But no, not this time. Um, let's see. Continuing on, we have Turn Comics Into Cash, the official 1983 comic books price guide. Thousands of prices, collecting tips. It's illustrated and has a checklist with a cover that appears to be by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, which I'm thinking is inked by Dick Giordano just by looking at it. Of course, it could be because of the reproduction. The next page is uh, two half-page ads. The top one is Build and Fly Your Own Model of the Space Shuttle Columbia. Because at this point, I believe that might have actually been the only one around yet. Uh, basically, this is one of your model rockets. It just looks like a space shuttle now. And the bottom half is an ad to sell grit. Uh, let's see. The next uh, ad page is one of the... Uh, page of a million ads, where you got a whole bunch of different small ads. The Mishmash page, I believe it's called, by several other podcasters, where you get all sorts of stuff. The next page is new from Rimco Toys. The battle action continues with Sergeant Rock playsets. Now, I've heard these were crap, but it just amazes me that Sergeant Rock had a playset. Uh, but there's the for Forward Recon post playset, the River Commando yeah, the River Commando Patrol playset and the Action Machine Gun Nest playset. And of course the art on the ad page is by the late great Joe Kubert. And because he does a good job with drawing worse stuff, it all looks really nice. And then that's uh, it. The end of the story we get um, inside back cover is an art for M Network. Sports, space, and strategy video games from Mattel Electronics can give new life to your Atari or Sears video arcade system. <laughs> Which, I'm sorry. I come from a later era. Well, I don't. I was alive for this. I had a, I had a ColecoVision, and I played Smurfs. And Donkey Kong. And Zwerk, I think it was called. And my favorite was Smurfs, because I was three. And I know that the graphics were terrible. It was great by those standards, but by today's standards, when you can get realistic-looking Batman, it looks terrible. So, unfortunately, I just... Looking back at these, it's like, wow, these suck. But it is pretty amazing when you think about who all got into the video game explosion, the pre-Nintendo video game explosion. I mean, yeah, there's Atari and the ColecoVision, but Sears, Radio Shack was making games. I mean, wow. In uh, the back cover is a Lego ad. Now you're building for real. Uh, it's the Lego Expert Builder Series. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. And uh, the one that I said I was going to save... Um, you know how before I was doing the, uh, how I've done the <clears throat> hostess ads? Well, unfortunately, there's no hostess ads by this point, because I believe they've stopped doing that by 19, by late 82. But in this one, Sears is selling something called the Magic Snake, which is a toy that could be a 
in the shape of a ball or it is a snake. So they put this together. It appears to be drawn by a five-year-old. But, or maybe Carmine Infantino. Hmm. But uh, it's Batman and Robin in SOS Save Our Snakes. Our story begins with Batman uh, rope swinging towards a window, and Batman's thinking to himself, Robin's message that he said that he was tracking the Joker to this Sears department store. The toy department is a logical place to find the Joker. Inside, Batman, thank goodness, Robin and the Joker were here a moment ago, but they vanished. Vanished, eh? This SOS, what is this? Those are magic snakes, Batman. They're a new toy craze. Each one makes 23 trillion different patterns, shapes, animals, even letters, like, like this SOS. And this arrow shape pointing to... A trap door. Freeze right there, Joker. Drat. It's the Batman. When I saw the message you constructed out of the magic snakes, Robin, I knew just where to look. Another one of your sneaky tricks, boy wonder. This time, Joker, more like a snaky trick. Sears has toys, games, and puzzles for the entire family, including the original Magic Snake. Wow. I've never seen the Magic Snake, but I know that it's not around much anymore, so I'm thinking it wasn't too magical. But that brings us to a feature that I've actually forgotten to do in the last few episodes, and I apologize. So we're going to return back to... Elsewhere, Elsewhere in the, in the DC, DC Multiverse. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Okay, other books that were on sale with a, in the month of October 1982. Adventure Comics number 495 featured a reprinted several reprinted issue, uh, stories featuring the Challengers of the Unknown, Superboy, Aquaman, Captain Marvel, Superboy again, Sandman, and the Spectre. Ooh. By the way, both Superboy stories. Legion of Superheroes, I think. Uh, Best of DC Digest number 32 features Superman in his mighty, battling the mightiest men in the universe. Superman fights off Solomon Grundy, Parasite, the man who murdered the Earth, a mystery mission to Metropolis, and fights in the ultimate battle. Uh, of course, we have Super uh, Firestorm taking on Typhoon in the Fury of Firestorm number 8. Justice League of America 210 features the Justice League uh, in the, when a world dies screaming. With a cool Rick Buckler, Mike DiCarlo cover. Wonder Woman number 299 features Wonder Woman in a battle against, I don't know who, a guy on a winged horse. Let's see if it says Aegis. Aegis. It's actually got a really cool Ed Hannigan, Dick Giordano cover that at first, at first look I thought was a um, George Perez cover. So that was really cool. And by this point, Wonder Woman's got the W on her chest, so that's cool. Batman, number 355, features Batman versus Catwoman. Flash, number 317, features Flash and a young crippled black boy. That's all I can tell from the cover. Uh, Masters of the Universe, number 2. The key to Castle Grayskull. 
Now, this mini, uh, the mini reason I mention this is not superheroes, I know. But one, He-Man was one of my favorites when I was a kid. Still is, actually. But this, something to remember with this series is that this is from before the cartoon. And so basically the comic is based on the toy line and is basically making things up as they go along. Now, the main gist of the story was created by Mattel. You know, uh, He-Man's the good guy. Skeletor's the bad guy. Castle Grayskull. All that stuff. Prince Adam transforms into He-Man. But things like how he transforms into He-Man are different. Because that was done differently until the cartoon. And then, of course, the cartoon. Everyone saw the cartoon, so that's how everyone remembers him transforming. And that's how forevermore Prince Adam will transform into He-Man by raising his sword into the sky and saying by the power of Grayskull but at this point it wasn't like that and of course things are based more on the playset so the characters look more like the toys and Castle Grayskull is small with a gun turret so yeah New Teen Titans number 27 featuring Runaways and we see all of the Teen Titans along with some other kids and one of them appears to be dead. Sad cover. But, believe it or not, that a different Atari Force insert is in this issue. Weird. By the same team. Although it says it's the, it's the same one, but it's not the one that was in this one. Weird. Saga of the Swamp Thing, number nine. I know Saga. I know Swamp Thing's not a... Uh, superhero either, but I just wanted to mention it. It's Prelude to Holocaust. Um, someone's got a gun pointed at Swamp Thing, there's a girl on fire, and a mummy. So, uh, Superman number 379 features Superman on Bizarro World. I actually like this story. Uh, it also introduces the Bizarro Justice League. You've got uh, including Yellow Lantern. So that's cool. Brave and the Bold number 194 features a team-up of Batman and The Flash versus Rainbow, Red, Rainbow Raider and Dr. Double X, who I actually hadn't heard of until last a recent episode of Bailey's Batman Podcast, which is back. You should check it out. Uh, Daring New Adventures of Supergirl number 3, which features Supergirl against... Well, it looks like Swamp Thing, but apparently it's called Decay. With a bonus feature uh, featuring Lois Lane. Green Lantern number 160 features Green Lantern against a whole army of alien bad guys. And, of course, the Green Lantern core backup feature. That was from the era where Hal Jordan was actually spending all his time in space before he went back to Earth, I believe he was it, he was in trouble for something and was dealing with uh, an, a one-year exile from Earth. Uh, House of Mystery number 312, which I'm only mentioning because this episode features Superman teaming up with the House of Mystery, presents I, Vampire, with a Kaluta cover that apparently his 80s Kaluta his 80s covers didn't look as cool as the stuff from this, from those groovy 70s that I used to go about. Legion of Superheroes number 295, featuring the origin of the universe. We even see some Green Lanterns. Night Force number 6, featuring art by Gene Colan and Bob Smith. Nice. 
I don't know, Devil, the Devil Herdu. I don't know anything about Night Force. I just know it's a pretty cool looking cover, so I wanted to mention it. Uh, Action Comics number 590, no, 539. Superman is chained up, and the past is imperfect. He's chained, and apparently he's having trouble actually breaking out of the chains, and to, in, or in the process of breaking out, he's also breaking the floor. So that's cool. It's got a Giffen Giordano cover, so that's also awesome. And there's a backup feature of featuring Aquaman in Help. I'm a prisoner in my own body. All-Star Squadron number 17 uh, features the trial of Robot Man. So that's cool. With art by, of course, Jerry Ordway. Nope. Sorry. Featuring a story by Roy Thomas and Adrian Gonzalez, and a cover by Joe Kubert that's not terrible, but Joe Kubert is not my favorite superhero artist, and it just doesn't really work here. Although, I have to say, this is probably one of his better ones. And of course, everyone's favorite, Captain A Carrot and his amazing zoo crew featuring the Was Wolf's Night to Howl and the Sinister Salamandroid. Yeah. Uh, Batman in Detective Comics number 522 features Batman up against the Sinister Snowman. New Adventures of Superboy number 37 features Brain vs. Brawn, the prize Superboy's best friend. So that's kind of cool. We've got Superboy fighting for Pete Ross against the guy using only brain powers. And finally, we have World's Finest number 287 featuring, of course, your average team-up of Superman and Batman and Robin. With a strange woman in the background in purple. So that's it. That's all that went on in... October of 1982. So that's going to do it for this portion of the show. When we return, J. David Weeder will present another spooky Superboy story. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. In 2008, they thought they destroyed us. After so many years of trying, they thought they cut the head off the snake. They doomed us, destroyed us, sent us away forever. But even then, the whispers could be heard. We're not dead yet. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not die without a fight. And then, on November 1st, 2011, the whispers were given a voice that started small and grew large. That whisper said, we're coming. And then on April 1st, 2012, those whispers of a few grew into the whispers of a many. We're And then those whispers grew into a voice 
and on May 26th, those voices shout out loud, we're back. The televised revolution As we drift through outer space Aboard the absolution With time back and active duty as captain In charge of bringing superior anime action Yeah, you came to the right place If you have a taste for animation In deep space base Broadcast through your television Due to the progress of the bring back Tsunami Twitter mission The same block that brought us Sailor Moon And Dragon Ball Z is back So stay tuned I remember way back Never leaving my room I stayed glued to my TV weekday afternoons Yeah, and thanks to Adult Swim I have a reason to use the TV in my room again Cause every night I'll be tuning in Since they going back to show when action tunes again Tsunami's back, bitches Wait, did you say Tsunami's back, bitches? That's the official hashtag if you missed it To celebrate time's return to television Yeah, Tsunami's back, bitches Wait, did you say Tsunami's back, bitches? That's the official hashtag if you missed it To celebrate time's return to television The Absolution Network your home of the Tsunami Generation since 2011 is your place for the reviews of the very best animation, both past and present. So come, join the revolution. Join the Tsunami Generation at www.an.132productions.com. Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm. Lolcats. Lolcats. Porn. Lolcats. What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well... Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia. <laughs> hey, everyone. Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast. Or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can, until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game. And yes, that does include the villains. Which includes the Joker. So he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement?
The Adventures of Superboy. Exciting stories of Superman when he was a boy, who even as an infant demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of Earthlings. Superboy, who as Clark Kent, mild-mannered foster son of Martha and Jonathan Kent, preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Hello, I am J. David Weeder with Superboy in the Bronze Age, looking at the Superboy tales of the 70s and early 80s. This time around, in accordance with Spooky Month, and by a recommendation from Charlie, I am covering The New Adventures of Superboy number 2, which features a cover penciled by Kurt Schaffenberger and inked by Dick Giordano, supposedly, since he did have a studio. But it features, uh, the cover features Superboy in flames as a red-faced demon that Lana tells us is her father laughs, and his laugh is an evil one, with a strange-looking green statue in the foreground. This represents our story, the first story of the issue, The Demon Next Door, written by Carrie Bates, penciled by Kurt Schaffenberger with inks by Dave Hunt, lettered by Ben Oda, colorist Gene D'Angelo. And our strange tale begins as Superboy returns home to the Kent household just in time to get a call from Lana Lang, and she's distressed and needs to come see him at once. So Superboy changes to Clark Kent at super speed, just as Lana rings the doorbell and comes in, addressing him as Superboy. Wait, what? It gets weirder. She goes on to explain that her father just returned from an archaeological trip to the Middle East, and he's possessed by a demon. She walked in on him, doing a dark magic ritual and sprouting horns. That's right. Horns. But Lana calls Clark Superboy again, and her father is possessed. That's where we're at right now. Keep up. Uh, it's going to get slightly weirder as we go. Superboy sees that the Lang house is on fire and rushes in, rescuing Professor Lang, who looks fine, but the flames are magic and don't go out. So Superboy catches himself on fire and flies into space to extinguish them. When he returns, Lana is running from her father, claiming that he is a demon, and runs into the path of an oncoming truck. With a burst of super breath, Superboy lifts Lana into the air and his arms, where she faints. So, with Lana resting, Superboy and Professor Lang talk, and Lang explains that in his travels, he discovered a relic known as the Twins of Korra, which is a sculpture representing good and evil. Originally, there was one face on the sculpture representing Ahura Mazda, a god of light, the other representing Mazda's dark twin, Aramon, and that was added later. Somehow, the dark half has possessed Lana, and if Superboy destroys the dark half, she will be free. But, there is some question about which half is good and which half is evil. So Superboy deduces that the dark half would have been facing away from the flame of the chamber it was found in. Professor Lang insists that the half that Superboy must destroy is the half with this mild imperfection on it. So Superboy aims his heat vision and melts the face on that side of the statue. And Professor Lang screams out that Superboy is destroying the wrong one, which it turns out he is not because, wait for it, Professor Lang is the one possessed by the demon and he was trying to trick Superboy into destroying the good half to give him complete control. And the demon is vanquished with the statue's destruction, and Clark sees Lana is wearing a necklace that allows her to see the true nature of any man. And part of the demon's plan, as it would really look like she was just in hysterics, since everybody else just sees regular Professor Lang, and she sees the demon. And that it's that necklace that allowed her to see him as Superboy, and when Lana awakens with the necklace removed, she no longer remembers Superboy's secret identity. So day saved, secret safe, demons gone, Dave a little bit befuddled. 
Um, there were a couple of times that I had to do a second take of this cover and make sure it was a Superboy book. But looking at the interior of the book, um, we get a nice bit of fake out on page two, actually, because Lana is clearly wearing the necklace that becomes a big piece of the story's ending, and Clark does not make note of it. We don't see anything really pointing it out. So it ended up being really not heavy-handed or winking to the reader that this is very important, which is very nice. You actually had to turn back to that page like, oh, I see what you did there. And then on page three, we have a devilish Professor Lang performing a dark ritual on panel four, which is shocking for a code-approved comic from the early 80s. But Lana was a bit too judgmental for somebody prone to changing into various superheroes over the years. I mean, have a broader world perspective, Lana. And then on page four, Clark gets dumber, because the Silver Age was filled with stories where Lana tried to prove that Clark is Superboy. She tried to trick him. And now he just pops the shirt open and reveals his costume, despite the fact that Lana may actually just be running a ruse. Don't rule out Lana starting her own house on fire to get Superboy to admit his secret identity. I mean, really? You change right in front of her, and you take her with you when you rush into the fire. And now I'm talking to fictional characters. That's awkward. And then jumping to page six, some really good art just popping off the page. Schaffenberger's Superboy really does have a solid body type. Clean lines will win me over every day. Plus, Superboy flies into space like a comet, which is awesome looking. And I think the colors here by Gene D'Angelo kind of win the page. Even if Clark Kent does kind of come off more like, you know, Johnny Storm. And this note actually spreads to page 7, because if Superboy couldn't extinguish the magic flames with his normal methods, why did he think that the lack of oxygen would put the flames out? They don't necessarily work like regular flames, so I guess it works, so that's kind of a pithy note, but it is what it is. And then Lana runs in front of a truck. Uh, nothing creative to say on that, sorry. Uh, page 9, we have a burned-out Lang house. I want you to make an earmark of that for the moment. I'm going to come back to that, but it is pretty well destroyed. But then we get pretty much two whole pages of talking heads with Professor Lang dropping a ton of exposition on us. And that was the entirety of pages 9 and 10 of a 12-page story, which then dives into two more pages of a quick resolution, with the climax being, well, Superboy melting a statue, which really isn't much of a climax at all, at least not by my definition. And then, remember the panel of the Lang House that I just mentioned a few seconds ago? On page 12, it mentions that Clark takes the now-demon-free Professor Lang to his bed to rest, and Clark visits Lana resting in her room, which looks untouched despite the damage to the house that we don't see now. There's still a ton of smoke in there. That's bad. The Lang should be dead from carbon monoxide poisoning, Superboy. Bad. And why didn't the Smallville Fire Department at least come to investigate? Does nobody in Smallville bother to call in fires? And why am I preoccupied with these superfluous details when there is a demon who has vowed revenge out there? I need to rethink my priorities. Until next time, I'm J. David Weeder, the old priest, sending you back to the young priest, Charlie Niemeyer. Well, thanks, Dave. And that's going to wrap things up for yet another episode of Superman in the Bronze Age. Please make sure to come back in just two short weeks for the start of Team-Up Month. That's right. Next month, I'm going to be covering a two-part team-up with The Flash from the first two issues of DC Comics Presents. And of course, David will return with yet another adventure of Superboy in the Bronze Age. Oh, and make sure you check out the latest episode of Comic Book Crazy, where I was invited on to talk about all things Superman.
You can check that out at comicbookcrazy.123productions.com. And before I go, I also want to mention that as of today and this recording, today is J. David Weeder's birthday. Happy birthday, David. And um, I also want to mention that my wife's birthday is on Tuesday, right about the time that this episode posts. So, weird timing. So thank you all for listening. I wish you all a happy and safe Halloween, and we will see you next time. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. The home of the show is at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com, where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted, and on Stitcher Smart Radio. Superman in the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will not only find postings for this show, but also for many other Superman-related podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you for listening, and God bless. show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. 